You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 015, with Carsten Schröder, co-founder and executive chairman of Amplitude Capital. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I really do appreciate it. On today's show, I'm talking to Carsten Schröder, co-founder and executive chairman of Amplitude Capital. Amplitude Capital is one of the most successful short-term CTAs in the world and have received many international awards for top performance and excellence in their field. Carsten talks in detail of the amazing journey over the past 10 years and about the unique philosophy and culture that Amplitude has been built upon. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode on the toptradersonplugged.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Carsten, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Niels. No problem. I think it's fair to say that when you founded Amplitude in 2004, you founded not only a new CTA firm, but probably one of the first short-term CTAs in Europe and one of only very few short-term oriented CTAs in the world, which in my mind takes a lot of courage and vision. You also came to the CTA industry, if we call it that, with a deep academic, or should I say, scientific approach to research and product design, which compared to many of the US-based legends, was somewhat different. Now, 10 years later, the vision has been rewarded with many international awards and for top performance and excellence in your field. So your vision clearly became a worldwide success. But before we go into the details about the company today, I would really appreciate if you would take us all the way back to the beginning, telling us your story and what led you to having the vision, the courage to pursue this career path. And feel free to go back as far as you want, since I know you have an interesting background. Yeah, thank you, Niels. Um, it's been, as you said, it's it's been an interesting journey, with, without any doubt. And I guess um, if we put ourselves back 10 years ago, uh, we would have not thought that um, 10 years later, a decade later, we would be where we are now. I guess that's probably very common for every entrepreneur who will start out, who will certainly have uh, great aspirations and and uh, great vision. But you know, at the end of the day, it's so far away at that point in time that you don't even like dare to, to dream about it. And you're also so concerned with, with a tremendous amount of everyday problems. And um, the reason why we, you know, why we started Amplitude was because we were all very passionate about trading. We were all very passionate about building models 
together with Peter Voss, uh, a friend, good friend of mine who I um, got to know during my uh, military service time back in Germany, and uh, Steffen Bendel, whom I went to school with. Okay. We, uh, we started working on Amplitude actually already a couple of years before we actually set it up in, in London back in 2004, building our own trading models and um, just exploiting the markets. Or not exploring, exploring the markets and sure. like seeing you know what's uh, what's possible there. And it's interesting that you made the remark that it, it is it is somewhat of a difficult venture to build up a short-term trading CTA, and that we were certainly one of the first firms who attempted to do so back in 2004. It kind of like came naturally to us because when the way it all started back in 2002, Eurex or back then Deutsche DTB Deutsche Terminbörse was releasing their first tick data historical tick data packages okay and uh, which we bought on on some of the major contracts and started to build models on it and we had a software which would allow us to run optimization routines on it and that was the time when we actually figured that most of the optimal solutions would lie on the short term in the short term space and of course, back then we were less concerned with execution cost and capacity and what have you, because those were not the problems we were facing back then. We were basically all just looking at generating maximum return. And f- to that extent, we were by no means pricing in slippage numbers that we had to deal with uh, in due course or at sure. a later stage in our career. So back then we saw the best solutions were all in, in the intraday field and that's why we ended up being a short-term trader. So that's it was not like we said, all right, we make a market analysis and there are the Wintons and the Blue Trends and the Man AHL and Trendstrand, all those firms that were already around. And we want to be somebody different and we want to sit in a different spot there. So we just um, going to build a, a short-term CTA. No, we, we basically did our, uh, built our models and that's that's what we came out with. And then back in 2004, end of 2003, beginning of 2004, I said to Stefan and to Peter, I think we have to try to turn this, and by that I mean like our trading ideas and what we had, into a proper business. And we were looking for, uh, for partners, for people who would support us. Sure. And we, uh, we found Shamil, who, who was just uh, phasing out of Deutsche Bank at that point in time in London. And we presented the strategy to him. And to this day, I don't know what kind of like gave him the conviction to to go with us because, I mean, in all fairness, I I only had two and a half years of of like working experience, generally speaking, and that was in a consultancy firm sure. uh, because I was with McKinsey back then. And uh, we presented the stuff to him, and I I have to say, if I would have been in his shoes, I would have never, never, never done this. So. <laughs> Then, you know, at the end of the day, even when you evaluate businesses today, it's, I think it's so much more down to the team than to the original idea. I think if you have a dedicated, enthusiastic team, you can even make a very mediocre idea work. And that's more like a general statement. Maybe it's not so true for financial markets, but in, in, in the world, if you have a business idea, even if it's not the most brilliant idea, as long as people stick with it and, and have that passion about it, then I think most likely they're going to make it work. Whilst if it's the other way around, when people just say, oh, where can I make money? And maybe they come up with something great. But then there are so many difficulties on your way to, to ultimate success that people would get frustrated about it. And I think because we didn't have that, and also there was not much to lose for, for all the three of us. I mean, we've, you know, we've all been fairly young, so 
coming to London, we had no money, no financial resources, and um, lived in in very modest in very modest circumstances. So we were basically dedicating all our time to building up this business. And uh, the first couple of years were really, really tough because I I remember I was doing so many meetings pitching this to all types of investors around the globe. Um, this flying economy, you know, having very uh, basic logistics and uh, just an incredible high density of, of meetings back then, uh, just doing doing a numbers game. And eventually we found the first couple of investors who, you know, who entrusted us with their, with their money. And so we could like build up a little bit of an asset base. And for the first, if I remember correctly, for the first uh, two years after we launched the fund that the assets were below $40 million. So certainly nothing that, that you could run a profitable business with. And then within a year, within 2007, basically from mid-2007 to mid-2008, it like totally turned around. So we, we grew assets pretty aggressively and we, we soft-closed or yeah, pretty quickly hot-closed our, our flagship fund back sure. then, Amplitude Dynamic, which is the two-day holding period program. And yeah, that, that more or less came overnight, to be honest, and we um, we we thought like wow we've we've been dreaming about this um, for so long and mm-hmm. times have been so uncertain and and so difficult and now eventually we got there so that was a very very rewarding kind of situation I have to say sure sure no it, it's a it's a fantastic story Carsten I want to I want to take you a little bit back again before we leave that because I'm interested in knowing what it was that you saw in the short term space. Um, in the sense that you know, computer power at the time obviously wasn't as great as it is today. Um, and so, so was what? What was it? What kind of intuition did you did you have that that you know that made you decide that that here's some really good opportunities, if you remember? Well, as I said back then, when you were <clears throat> when you were running a data set and um, just a f- sharp optimizing routine. Your optimum solutions would come out in the short-term trading, in, in the in the short holding period area, okay. and that of course can change completely if you would feed in costs. So uh, the more costs you would feed in, which means the more assets you have to manage, then obviously you would arrive at totally different strategies. And don't forget back then when. You know, it was just about like this whole short-term game was just about to to start. Yeah, the data you were working on it was not really penetrated by a lot of short-term trading activities so sure. far. So, and and the markets were were very healthy, and by that I mean they were free of any interventions. They were you, we had healthy trends, we had good movements. It was um, yeah, it it was a good market environment, and so short-term trading. Back then, I mean, the first couple of years, it was just really good. It was um, it was a really good uh, market environment. Sure, and 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 just out of curiosity, the trading you did and 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 your partners did uh, bef- before even starting this, yeah. was was that also in the short term, or was it just completely different type of trading until you started your research? So very early on, like the proprietary trading that we were doing was more on a discretionary basis. And then we built the first models and that was more, I would say, more medium term. Sure. Um, and then the when we built, like when we ultimately built these models that we then pitched, we focused more actually on the model building activities. 
in particular towards the end of 2003 and beginning of 2004. And then we, when we had Shamal on board, we were really concerned with like building up the infrastructure, building up the office. And I think the prop trading before launching the fund, which happened in June 2005, that prop trading then only started like in November or December. So we had like half a year of, of prop trading activities beforehand. Sure, sure, sure. And could you give me a just a brief overview for now, at least, of the programs you run today and where they are in terms of uh, AUM? Yeah, we basically have two programs. We have Amplitude Dynamic, which is the one I was describing in this uh, brief history, which is a two-day holding period um, short-term CTA program that trades all asset classes. And it um, it currently trades around a billion dollars. Sure. Um, then we have uh, Classic, which is an eight-day holding period program, has around $600 million in it. We have more reversionary elements in Dynamic than we have in Classic. And uh, with regard to, to the underlying models, it's, it's pretty hard to describe. I mean, when you build short-term trading models, it's all, um, it's, it's all greenfield research. I mean, you may use some components from indicators that you would know from textbooks but uh, at the end of the day it's all um uh it's it's all in-house developed sure. and there it has become actually nowadays the systems have become really really complex sure sure uh, in no, terms of components that are, but, but i guess we will touch on that absolutely yeah point. because i the, the, absolutely we'll, we'll certainly go into that because yeah. i want to ask a slightly different question maybe a, sure. a question you don't get asked uh, so 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 many times when people come to visit you but um I know that, uh, or at least my impression is that within Amplitude as a company, you have a very strong philosophy underpinning the way you develop your business and the fact that you're not trying really to be everything to everybody, if I can put it like that. Can you tell me a little bit about this philosophy and what it means and what it has meant in the development of your business? Yeah, I guess we've over the, I mean, first of all, you, like at the very beginning, I don't think that like anybody really has like a super clear positioning. Sure. Um, at least it wasn't the case with us because we were probably way too immature to this business. And also <laughs> the business was just about to like to form and to develop and client base has changed a lot over yeah. the course uh, of the years. Sure. So in particular, post 2008, when clients have become significantly more institutional, and high net worth family offices kind of like have re retracted from the space, it became more and more important to become uh, somewhat unique or somewhat special just apart from being a hedge fund that tries to make money. Yeah. So we have really made ourselves a name for downside protection, which comes a little bit natural when you're a short-term trader because you will be much quicker in terms of turning your positions around. Sure. But also because you like the way how you um, put your reversionary elements in there and so on and so forth, that can have a, or that will have a pretty significant impact on your performance characteristics. So, so this was uh, this is certainly one of the key elements that that we have in mind. And beyond that, of course, we try as like anybody else's, I guess, does to make the most efficient system. And to um, you know, just to produce the greatest sharp and just deal with the challenging market environments that you face along the time. What we really try to to do in our research process 
is to be very robust and very quantitative in terms of our approach. So we have a pretty rough testing and um, I mean, I guess everybody would say that, but because <laughs> like the vast majority of, of our research team has really strong academic and scientific background, we, um, we really take it a little bit from that angle. So it has a bit of a, it has a bit of a, sometimes even a bit of a German over-engineered touch to it that we try to, <laughs> to really understand everything to its smallest possible detail before we are comfortable in, in terms of like putting it live. And also, you know, when you talk about statistics, you're dealing with so much uncertainty here and uh, you will never have a solution or a component which is, um, which is like a super clear case where you say, yeah, that's safe or safe in terms of like, it's definitely going to do only this and there is no circumstance under which it's going to cause a problem. Most things under particular circumstances will actually cause problems and, and we really try to take our time even more so now, to really understand what those circumstances could be. And it's really interesting when you, I mean, we get, we get pitched so many strategies and uh, we are, like, you, you can see, like, having done all these years of research, like, when you start questions, how you can sometimes see that, in particular, young people that maybe have worked only on their own and said, yeah, I had this trading idea and they're building that, sure. and they don't understand the, the danger of all the biases you you can um, you can create, being that um, selection bias, um, or survival bias, or technology bias, even um, by you know fooling yourself because things look great, but things look great because you have somehow insampled things that you may not be conscious of. So that's really important for us when we're trying to you know put a great a great deal of effort in it on our research process to to mitigate these potential dangers as as much as we can sure sure and and having this focus does that um i wouldn't say allow you is the right word but does does that mean that you also focus on maybe fewer larger institution that allows you to get maybe closer to them and explain maybe more of all of this complexity uh, that 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 you have inside your program compared to maybe a classical medium-term trend-following program is that sort of the the an important part of of, of your overall uh, philosophy as well? Yeah, it certainly is. With the product we have, which I would call somewhat esoteric, it's not super easy to understand. It does require a fair bit of due diligence and a fair bit of understanding from the investor side. And in particular, nowadays, where you know performance in the space has been very mediocre, sure. so uh, you want to make sure that you have a very educated client base. And um, I, I sincerely hope that the good times will come again. And um, believe me, we will be super selective in terms of the people we take on board because we have to give a lot of credits to to our clients. And I think as important as it is for an investor to choose the right fund, yeah. as important it is for, for a good fund to choose the right investors because it becomes like a, a partnership. I mean, sure. we've, you know, we've worked together with the vast majority of our clients for such a long time. They know the programs to, to a very great detail. Um, you want to be very consistent in terms of what you deliver, and um, that, builds, um, that builds a working relationship. 
Sure. That that truly builds a working relationship. I know like a lot of these words and, and I hate all these buzzwords and all this <laughs> bullshit stuff. Like when, when people say, oh yeah, we're like building a relationship. Well, I can understand now what it actually means with some of these bigger clients that you've worked together with for years. And I mean like five years or seven years or eight years yeah. and have had, I don't know how many hours of strategy calls. It would probably be weeks of strategy calls where they really understand what you're doing and get comfortable with what you are doing. And, and I think it's very important. I think it helps you. It, it may be significantly more difficult to, to get a client in the first, in the first place. Sure. Um, but it, it will pay out in the long run because no matter what strategy you run, you will eventually face some difficult times. And having clients that understand what they get themselves into and are not just chasing your most recent performance is super important. Is super important from our perspective, and uh, as I said, I can I can only reiterate the, this point. We are extremely happy uh, with our client base, and we have to give a lot of credits to these institutions and the people who work there uh, in terms of like how they make their decisions, how they manage their portfolios, and how they work together with us. Sure, no, absolutely. I want to shift gear a little bit and talk about um, just the organization as a as a whole. Um, I don't want to necessarily go into all the details, but I'd like to know how you uh, have organized the business and, and, and maybe in particular, because obviously a short-term manager may have other requirements than a medium nor long-term manager, but also technology-wise and, and are there some things that nowadays can be outsourced successfully or is it important to keep everything in-house in, in your opinion? Well, we try to keep as much in-house as we possibly can because when you're so reliant on technology, being that on the research, but even more so being that on the trading, you you don't necessarily want to rely on too many outside parties. Uh, we have, I mean, there's only there's only one component really that we've outsourced, which is our CRM system, and uh, I think we've we've lived through three different providers, and it's just a continuous nightmare. <laughs> it's just like really, really horrible, and. So having that experience, I, I mean, it's CRM, so, yeah. so you kind of like take a manual override to that. But imagine if this would be on the trading, on the research side, it would be a disaster. Sure. So we're trying to keep as much in-house in as we can. So you have, a, you have a pretty strong IT and technology function within the firm, which will support the trading, the execution, and the research. Sure. And uh, we have built that up over the over the course of the years, and then we have um, then we have our execution research and we have our strategy research. Okay. So that's of kind of like how it's grouped. And um, I would say on the other functions in the firm, we're trying to be super slim and, and super efficient. I mean, as as you may know, we only have one person really um, doing the investor relations, which given that we have a fairly small number of investors that that's perfectly fine sure and um he is supported by um by our two assistants who who help him a great deal in terms of like organizing everything and you know uh keeping uh, all the documentation in place and then we have the operational side and we have uh, uh we have our cfo john and that kind of like rounds up the business sure sure and do you have for the two programs you were, you're running today, I mean, is there such a number as a, an optimal size? I know that Dynamic has been soft close or, or hard close, however you want to put it, uh, for a while. But is there, 
given the strategies you have uh, currently, uh, you know, some a number that you have in mind where you say, you know, yeah, once we get to this number, we'll we'll consider whether we need to grow any further with these strategies. Yeah. So this dynamic, um, we are currently. It's only available through Symphony, which is um, a, like a feeder, a blended version yeah. where you have to invest into both programs. Sure. And um, there is really small and limited capacity left. We have uh, conversations with our existing client base. We have received a fair amount of additional allocations this year from our existing clients, and there are some outstanding mandates where you know it. It um, the decisions are yet to be made. Sure. How uh, that could drive. Um, I personally would say very likely a closure of Symphony, which means that there is no more access to Dynamic. Sure. Neither uh, it, it hasn't been as a standalone for years and years, but also not through through this blended version. And then we will grow Classic from there onwards. And the ultimate capacity in Classic we would currently see at around $3 billion. So okay. having around 1.2, 1.3 in Dynamic and then 3, maybe 3.5 in Classic, it would it would bring the firm just slightly south of $5 billion, which I think is a, is a, really, good, is a really good number. I mean, that's definitely a number we want to get to. Uh, we will see how long it takes. I mean, sure. um, it, it, would, it probably takes longer than we thought initially, but I, I'm very confident that eventually we're going to get there. So... Um, yeah, we will just really work on, on our two programs and, and we'll continue to improve them until we get there. And then when we get there, then we think what else to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's um, let's dive in a little bit. Now, before we go into the programs themselves, I want to take just a bird's eye view on the track record, not so much specifically, specifically um, but, but more also with your experience. Now, one observation, of course, would be that for many CTAs, the period post 2009 has been somewhat different in terms of the environment and so i wanted to ask you firstly whether that's something you have um, noticed as well in your own um, you know trading programs and also um, when looking at, at at your your track records and i know of course that classic started in in 09 but certainly with with dynamic is there anything one should look at uh, in terms of looking at the track record in stages uh, where perhaps upgrades have taken place and where it's maybe changed a little bit uh, its its profile from from the initial part because I guess sometimes when you look at track records and they can be you know 10 20 30 years long you're not really you know expecting to have the same uh, you know structure of the program that they had 30 years ago that uh, uh, having that today so how does it fit in with with your programs, Carsten? Well, there's <clears throat> there's constant evolution in our programs, and we because like we're so focused and centered around the research and the innovation pressure you have in short term trading, which by the way I think is significantly higher than what you have in medium to long term. So I think if you stop doing stuff in medium to long term, you will have a degradation, but it's not going to be as hard sure. as what you're going to be seeing in short term trading. So. We have a fair amount of implementations. I would say the average half-life of a component in one, like in our systems, is around two years. Okay. And it's a, it's a constant progression. What we have to make sure, <clears throat> and that comes back to the point, like how we're working together with our clients, that we are very, very consistent in terms of what we do. So there is, there is a negative notion to the word change. Yeah. That's why we prefer the word upgrade, because without 
you know, being too nitty-gritty about it. Upgrade means you do more or less the same what you're doing before, but just in a better way. Sure. If you change something, then it means you're doing something different, yeah. which we can't. So, like, what that means, in, like, very simple layman terms, means that the good months will stay the good months and the bad months will stay the bad months. So sure. the difficult periods will continue to be the difficult periods and the good periods will continue to be the good periods. Now, that's important because there's things that you can do who will turn it completely around. And in particular, when you act as a particular building block in a portfolio, that can become very dangerous. So assuming that, for example, clients really need us to protect them in an equity market downturn, we have to make sure that with whatever we do in the research to improve the overall return profile, we will keep that functionality. Yeah. And that can sometimes you know, create... I'm not saying conflict of interest, but you have something that would improve your performance, but it's going to have a, a substantially negative impact on, on your downside protection ability, so that, that then becomes a no-go. And uh, so you need to always find a healthy balance there. Just um, one more remark with, re- with regard to your initial questions, like how things have changed post-2009 and to what extent that's a reflection of our program. I would say we've always done research and we do implementations along the line, so it was not just triggered by 2008, 2009, but I think you can certainly make the statement that the world post-2008 is a very different one yeah. for a range of reasons. Um, and and it, it's, not been, it's not been helpful to the CTA space, no matter if you're in the short-term or long-term space. For a starter, having markets that face interventions is not healthy. Sure. So... The, there are two factors. There was the, the fiscal policy from the U.S. Central Bank with all the quantitative easing, which takes place in a counter-trend manner, is not helpful. So you get bad news, um, then you have uh, activity. They try to stabilize those markets. So whenever you're kind of like going short because it looks like there's a sell-off and market's going a little bit south, that's going to be stopped through uh, either statements or activity um, from the central banks or statements from the politicians. On top of that, which made it actually even worse on a completely different level, was the way how the sovereign, um, uh, the, um, you know, the European debt crisis was sure. managed. And I would say that, that out of like all possible people, <laughs> I would say Merkel is probably the person that had cost the CTA industry the, the vast majority of money. Okay. Because the way she's handled this crisis... Um, which, which was a salami tactics with no clear positioning from the very start, but just in a firefighting mode. It's been horrible for the markets from our perspective because it just would clear it, it would just kill any clear trend and it takes the natural dynamics away. The, the markets have become at least like in 2011 or 10, 11, 12, like ever since it started, um, have become so news sensitive. To those kind of things, so you had like a negative news flow because some some troika was visiting these peripheral states and found loop or holes in their budget, and then the markets were taking a negative view on it. And a couple of days later, then the ECB or you know France and Germany were just committing to another rescue package, and then the markets like traded up again. So that that was just like really not helpful. Sure. And um, beyond that. 
commodity markets have been challenging, which they have always been in, in history. So with commodity markets, you always had periods where they were super attractive and periods where they were like challenging. But when everything comes together at the same time, that obviously creates an environment which just been like tricky. Sure. And I would say in terms of model building, you have three breakpoints. Um, so you have 2004, 2005, which is the advent of short-term trading. Okay. So you have like very simple models to work up until then and then decay afterwards. That's relatively easy to work away. Then you have post-2008 with all the things we've described. Mm -hmm. And then you have actually post-mid-2010 or like, like let's say from the start of 11 where it got really bad. Sure. And I would say up until end of 2010, we, we, have, we have like really, really good systems who can handle everything. And then post-2010, it becomes a bit specific. So, <laughs> so they're like, it, it becomes really hard to like work the last three years. Sure, sure. And for, for the reasons I mentioned. Yeah. And all increased volatility, uh, sorry, increased correlation between the markets, which hopefully now goes the other way because with Europe going a different way than the US could be very helpful. Sure, sure. And um, then we have obviously this government intervention factors, which I think in the US is coming down as well, which is great news. And then Europe going the other way, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what we've been, that's, sure. those are the challenges that we sure. have to deal with. Sure. And and just before we leave uh, that and we, we go into the, the, the trading programs, um, do you think, well, two things actually. One, have you noticed this kind of, I mean, I don't know how far you've gone back in your research, but I mean, have you noticed uh, something similar back in time, meaning that, okay, maybe it's been, you know, two, three, four years now, uh, and it's been difficult, but it's not unusual. I, I, I recently heard a study that uh, Larry Hyde and his team at ISAM had done going back up to 800 years, and, and they were basically saying that, you know, this is really not uh, unprecedented, and, you know, it's happened before, and it's going to happen again. So that, that I'm just curious whether you had noticed anything from the short-term point of view in the same direction, and also... Um, whether or not the last few years actually speeds up model decay um, or whether model decay is as more or less a constant regard, regardless of environment? Yeah, first of all, I mean, I have to say, I don't know what use there is to go back 800 years. It sounds to me like rather <laughs> weird, to be totally sure. honest. Sure. Um, and certainly from our perspective, I don't know what Larry Hyde is doing in his programs. And it's actually none of our business and it's none of our competitors neither. So, um, from our perspective, it is unprecedented. Okay. Uh, for the reasons I've given. Yeah. And this, uh, you also have the factor that obviously technology has advanced significantly. So, when you when you run like whatever we do now, you run that on on data. Let's say pre two thousand five, it looks of course great because that's something that we call technology bias. So sure. today, with like all the experience you have and all the computer power you have, you will be able to build strategies and models that you would have never been able to build back then. Sure. And it's like fighting yesterday's wars with today's weapons. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's like the same. I think that's a very similar. Sure. Uh, sure. Or it's an analogy. So, um, yeah. To that extent, I I think the challenges are tough. I don't think that that the environment will stay as bad because environment changes along the line 
And there are very specific things that you know drive markets for the time being, which uh, which create a challenging environment for for what we are doing. But that does not necessarily mean that those things will will be there forever. And besides that, we all know that markets are stable for some time, and then there's either a bubble or a problem that nobody has seen before, or something else destabilizes the world, and then it all like goes upside down again. And from an investor's perspective, I, I think there is a very, very few people in this world who manage to call the markets in the right way. Sure. And even those guys can be surprised by the development of a geopolitical risk situation that nobody can forecast. Yeah. So from an institutional investor's standpoint, what you have to do is actually build a stable portfolio, like a long-term strategic stable portfolio. And therefore, you need protection for turbulences in the market. And as long as that protection is not going to cost you money in the meantime, I think you have to go for it. Yeah. Unless you say, look, I'm totally happy about these five, six, seven years where I produce great returns. That one year where I'm going to lose it all, let's just forget about it. It was just a crap year. Let's <laughs> put it behind us. So if you have that kind of attitude, yeah, then, then like ignore trading strategies just go for strategies that collect some sort of premium being at a carry or whatever um, then you can do that but if you actually concerned about these years as well and want to have a decent performance in those years as well i think you have to have a balanced portfolio sure well talking about the strategies let's uh, let's dive in a little bit uh, to the trading programs and obviously um, you'll decide whether you're going to maybe talk about it from from the classic point of view or from the dynamic point of view or a mix of both but tell me a little bit about in your own words how you've structured the programs and and why you've designed them in the way you have uh, if there's a particular sort of we talked about there is a design philosophy you want to provide protection but but talk us through sort of the overall uh, structure of how you how you've gone about it so as you as you will probably appreciate, I can only do that in a very in a very superficial way. Sure. And um, the way the you know the way the systems are built is that we are uh, we have lots of components that that come into an indicator, and um, we bring those things together to achieve a, a couple of a couple of of things. Uh, it's beneficial for us to run many many strategies because it it will allow us to have a more equal activity um, or equalized activity in the market so we are not like just trading in one go so from a slippage perspective sure. that's uh, that's important we are obviously also trying to achieve diversifications through uh, many many different models we run we um, use reversionary elements for efficiency reasons and to be distinct so to be um, to have a unique return stream and we need to, in terms of like structuring of the portfolio, we need to keep uh, consider liquidity um, as as a key factor for for weighting the markets. So, being a short term trader, you will naturally have more concentration on the deep liquid markets. Sure. Be, because otherwise, the slippage is just going to go through the roof. And in particular, as you accumulate assets, it's, it becomes a factor. Yeah. So that's kind of like how the how, how both programs are structured. In terms of the the research and implementation that we do, we have a generic approach. So whatever we look at, we try to look at it from like from all different 
um, trading timeframes. And it is unfortunately the case that with many things you do, they only work in particular timeframes. And uh, some of the critics may say, oh, yeah, that's like overfitting. Uh, no, but, but naturally, there are things like to expand your time frame. Obviously, you're working on different price actions in the market. You're working on different statistics. So certain things do not work anymore. Um, and, um, and so therefore, in terms of the final implementations that take place into the two programs, into classing and to dynamic, it's quite different, like, what we do in dynamic and what we do in classic, and initially, and I, I have to have to admit that we tried to to grandfather a lot of the things that we had in dynamic into classic, and and that didn't really work very well. So the first one and a half years, performance wise, were really a disappointment. So we did a lot of dedicated development for classic, and uh, ever since it became, you know, more like what we wanted it to be in terms of performance characteristics and quality. Sure. How, how many markets do you actually trade in, in each of the programs? We have roughly 40 markets in Dynamic and around 70 markets in Classic. Okay. And, and what does the sort of the investment process look like if we take an example from, you know, uh, signal generation in a particular market? What, what happens then? What kind of factors are, are you looking at? Do you need uh, intraday data, which I'm sure you do, and, and so on and so forth, just to visualize a little bit about what, what it actually means uh, when we talk about these short-term uh, processes? Yeah, so we, we mostly work on take data. And um, what that happens in real-time fashion, our models recalculate their position links and their signals as they change as it creates a delta between the position we want and we, we have, that feeds into our execution engine, which will then work the order book. Uh, so depending on like, what the order book looks like, this will lead to um, a certain type of trading activity to get the most slippage-efficient execution. There are risk overlays, which, will, which are largely directed towards uh, the volatility we're experiencing in a market or particular intraday uh, true range breakouts. So if there's like massive events taking place, there will be a real-time downscaling of our positioning as well for um, for risk management perspectives. But that kind of like drives the ultimate positioning in the market. Sure. And do you is a model a market specific model, or is uh, I guess it could be both. It could be a market specific model, or it could be a model that you can run on on all of the markets. Obviously, you know, traditional trend following tends to have few models on many markets. But I imagine maybe you have a lot more models, but on a maybe fewer set of markets. Or you know, so how how does that work? Do you have both type of models, or are they all really designed uh, for a specific market uh, that you want to trade? Um, well, there are different philosophies how you can do that, and that's that's like all about how statistically significant you you can be on doing things individually or globally across asset classes, on and so forth. I would I would prefer not to comment in terms of like how we do it, but sure. it's definitely um, viable um, to do both approaches. And uh, as long as you, I mean, as long as you can be robust, I would always try to be as specific as you possibly can. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So as long as somebody feels like I'm not fitting to something particular here, which is like which is not robust, then of course you have to expand your data set. But if you're comfortable with that, then then try to be as specific as you can. Sure. And do you disclose roughly ballpark uh, in terms of the the number of different models you run in each uh, of the programs, just to get a feel for that? Or uh, we do that to investors. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, but generally, no, we don't disclose it. But 
of course, um, like if you are an existing client and in a, in a, you know, progress strategy due diligence, we will talk a lot about these things. And we also talk a lot about implementations we've done on the research side so that people kind of like see progressions and see what we do. But that, that all comes at a deeper stage of, sure. of the due diligence process. Sure. And would you be able, because obviously the audience is, is, has, you know, very varied uh, experiences uh, in, 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 in some sense, is it possible for you to visualize generally the difference between sort of a, a trend following model and a mean reversion model uh, if you were just going to try and sort of explain it as to not specifically how you approach it, but just generally how you approach the two different uh, types of models? Well, so trend following um, takes a position in the direction the, the price has gone to trigger the signal. So the price goes up, it will trigger a signal, you go long. With mean reversion... Our counter-trend models, as like the name uh, alludes to, the position you will take actually goes into the counter-direction of the price movement in the market that will actually trigger your signal. So the market continues to go up, you will eventually go short. Sure. And of and course, that's, that's a core difference. Sure. And of course, uh, when we, um, in you know, obviously there are more of the medium to long-term um, trend following managers out there yes. and so it's quite uh, interesting to hear sort of your perspective and that is you know the debate i guess uh, very often comes down to are people using moving averages or are they using price breakout as their indicators um you know what's the pros and what's the cons but actually my question is more does these traditional trend following type um, indicators do they also have validity uh, in the short-term space I don't think that anything that you can read in a book Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.